Greetings. This is Jessica Schmidt, Director of Investment Communications here at Diamond Hill, and this is Understanding Edge. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Josh Barber to discuss the latest trends and themes in the real estate and housing markets. Josh is a research analyst at Diamond Hill focused on REITs, title, and mortgage insurance. Josh has been with Diamond Hill since 2015. He received both his bachelor's degree and master's degree in Talmudic law from Nair Israel Rabbinical College and his MBA from the University of Baltimore. Josh is also a CFA charter holder. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Josh Barber. Hey, Josh, welcome back once more to the podcast. Hi, Jess. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we really appreciate it. We're headed into the holiday season, so I'm glad you were able to carve out some time to talk about the latest happenings in the real estate and housing markets. Yeah, real estate is always an interesting place. I feel like people get to see it, touch it. Everybody interacts with real estate in some way, shape, or form, so it always ends up being topical. So that- thanks for thank- yeah, thanks for having me on. Wonderful. Well, Josh, you've covered real estate at Diamond Hill for a a fairly long time, roughly eight years, focusing on firms ranging from storage companies to commercial real estate companies. And for most of that part, as we all know, the interest rate environment and the monetary policy in general has been very supportive of those markets. And of course, that changed very dramatically in 2022. Um, to kick us off here, perhaps you can share with us how REITs and home builders fared this past year, given the drastic shift in the macro environment. Yeah, it's a great question to start with, and um, you're probably not surprised to learn that the answer is they fared negatively. <laughs> and you know, for the most part, pretty much, um, you know, real estate sectors do have, you know, are 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 more leveraged, have you know, are, are yield focused sectors, um, or if you're looking at housing. You know, and for sale housing are usually going to be ones that are simply affected by the price of debt and the availability of debt. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with a very quick um, increase in real estate, you know, real estate debt availability and real estate debt pricing, um, it's not a surprise that you know the groups have taken uh, you know a, a decent step back and underperformed most of the big indices this year. I, I think what's more interesting, if you look at things, and you know, is is not only the sector performance, but generally what happens to real estate and equities, um, equities broadly in rising interest rate, um, you know, in rising interest rate environments. So, you know, if you're going to look at you know the real estate sector performance, real estate is such a broad and diverse sector that almost always there's going to be sectors that are massively outperforming and sectors that are massively underperforming. I think what makes this year unusual is if you look at the composition of sectors that have actually really outperformed, the two sectors that have performed the best this year have been triple nets, which are very long-term lease bond-like um, you know, r- real estate. That They tend to have some defensive characteristics, so in, an, in, in economic weakness, they tend to outperform. But strangely, those are also the sectors that generally have the most interest rate sensitivity. And yet they've been the best performing sectors year to date. Um, also interesting is in a year that people have been worried about an economic downturn, that hotels have been performing extremely well. 
Um, I think there are good reasons for that. We can get into that later in the conversation. Um, if you look at the flip side of that, though, a lot of the residential ecosystem, so manufactured housing, single family, for rent, apartments, um, have been among the worst performers, along with office. Office shouldn't really be a surprise. Um, I, I don't think to most people. But I think if, when you're, if you're really looking at the sector composition, if you had told me before the year started that interest rates would be up significantly, I don't think it would have been much of a stretch to have predicted that REITs and home building would have underperformed. But if you had told me before the year that you know interest rates would be up, REITs would be you know REITs would be underperforming, but net lease and hotels have massively outperformed. I think that would be a big surprise to you know to myself and to a lot of people. Yeah, that's really interesting, Josh. And, and we talk about interest rates and the, the monetary policy kind of environment. Um, but what are some of the other long-term factors that have emerged um, that are impacting these various sectors within real estate? So, you know, to, to touch on interest rates for a minute, because those are definitely very important over the short term. And, you know, real estate and home building in particular tend to underperform, particularly when there are very sharp rises in interest rates. And again, that shouldn't be a surprise. They are generally, you know, like we talked about at the beginning, more levered sectors and, you know, ones that are reliant on their cost of debt, particularly when you were looking at the end of 2021, when I believe equities in general were expensive, but, you know, real estate cap rates and debt costs were at very low rates. You know, it's almost axiomatic that when interest rates are going to rise, that REITs are going to get hurt because their cost of equity and debt is going to get repriced very, very quickly. Um, and just given the longer term lease nature of most real estate, it's not easy for them to adjust their revenues and their costs as quickly as rates may be rising. So anyway, ha having REITs underperform because of you know, sharply rising interest rates is usually a problem. Um, what usually happens, though, is if rates are going to be in a slow rise cycle, kind of what we saw in 2003 to 2006, REITs actually outperform usually in those kinds of cases because they're able to reprice their liabilities in a very orderly way. And those are generally going to be accompanied by a pretty strong economy. So, you know, if, if they're able to, you know, keep up with their revenues and, and expenses and revenues can, can outpace expenses over time, REITs have actually performed just fine generally in those slower rising rate environments. But when you're looking at other levers that they have to, you know, to add value over time, it's not going to be a surprise that, you know, two of the biggest factors would generally be their location. You know, real estate is, you know, the three L's, location, location, mm -hmm. location. Um, mm -hmm. And also, you know, together with that would just be the supply demand in their market. So you can have a property type where demand is extremely strong, but if there's going to be just an oversupply of, um, you know, assets and properties in that market, it could end up dampening a lot of that revenue growth. So let's think about your typical apartment market. It's been a pretty good year. It's been a pretty good five or six years actually for apartments, even though for sale housing has been doing pretty well. In markets like, let's say, Southern California, Northern California, New York, which are generally much more supply constrained, um, the renter demand is going to be higher because it's, it's, it's so much more expensive to get single family homes. But in addition to that, there's very few apartments that are going to be being built on a regular basis. So even if the market itself maybe isn't adding as many jobs as a market like, let's say, Atlanta, the overall supply picture is so much more constrained that you could end up with better supply growth. Conversely, if you would look at a place like Atlanta, you would say, wow, job growth and multifamily revenue growth are usually pretty highly correlated. But if you're going to be in a market or particularly a sub-market where there's going to just be a tremendous amount of new supply that's being delivered, 
landlords there will not be able to raise rents as you know as quickly as they can. Um, so you know, as always, that's going to be factors that are just driving long-term value. I think the other thing you know that that you always want to be looking at is also just the scalability of a platform. Um, and I think we can talk about uh, about this later, but most real estate by its nature is extremely local, right? Location, location, location. If you own a phenomenal shopping center in Columbus or in St. Louis or in Baltimore, that's going to be very highly determined by the three or five mile radius around it and what that neighborhood and demographic look like. Mm -hmm. But if you own that shopping center, it really doesn't do much good to you if you own one in Columbus, if you own one in Baltimore and if you own one in St. Louis, right? There's not too many economies of scale. There might be modest ones, right? Negotiating with 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 with, with, with um, national tenants, um, you know, some know-how, design capabilities, you know, th those sorts of ideas. But you know, in 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 reality, the you know economies of scale don't usually apply broadly to real estate. Um, within certain submarkets, you know, if you own a huge amount of apartments in one particular market, you probably have really good knowledge about submarkets, about movement, about jobs, about transportation, and those things can be advantageous, but are usually not huge. Then you actually have some companies, you know, and I think the, you know, the self-storage companies would probably be the most notable, where you actually have national brands, um, you get, you know, huge amounts of benefit from advertising. Um, you know, where, you know, most people are starting their search on Google and you can be one of the largest self-storage players, it almost guarantees you that you're going to be one of the first search results when somebody searches for self-storage near me. That's an advantage that, you know, those companies can have that are going to be, you know, tremendously beneficial to them and have been tremendously beneficial to them over the last decade, but continue to be a source of growth. I would say that, you know, that tends to be rare. Those are the kind of things that we look for when we look for investments. But you know, economies of scale, the ability to you know have a good cost base, your knowledge, your real estate location, and your supply demand. And maybe the last factor there would just be you know is something weird happening with your property type. Kind of you know the thing that we've seen um, you know over the last call it five to ten years in both retail and in office. Um, um, as you know, on the downside as well as maybe something like warehouse on the upside. And Josh, you mentioned a little bit earlier when you're talking about some of the uh, outperforming sectors and some of the underperforming sectors. For the underperforming ones, you you mentioned residential, apartment, office, um, and given the backdrop of of higher inflation, the rising rate environment, um, you know, cap rates certainly are higher than they were back in 2021. Um, can, can you talk a little bit or expand a little bit on those sectors that have been especially challenged and maybe the outlook as we go into 2023 for those? Yeah, great question. Um, it, it's pretty funny because especially with the residential sectors, and I'll, I, I'll, I'll start there. Um, I think a lot of investors, and again, myself included, were pretty positive on apartment demand. And, it's, you know, again, if you had blindfolded me before the year and said, hey, there's going to be a, you know, a, a relatively sharp rise in rates. Um, yeah, apartments tend to be a lower cap rate sector. So again, you know, just on a knee jerk, you know, the repricing of their equity might be more severe than others. But, you know, higher rates would also tend to discourage more people from buying homes, which is what's happened in the latter half of this year, you know, particularly where you've seen home starts start to slow, new home sales and even existing home sales start to slow significantly. Um, all of that should be beneficial for for rent sorts of property types, which would include apartments, 
manufactured housing to a lesser degree, and certainly single family for rent. So, you know, the, the rent growth outlook um, for those properties, excuse me, has been very strong this year. They've continued to put up excellent same store revenue and same store net operating income growth. Um, and they're even going into 2023 with decent sized lost leases, basically meaning that their in place rents are still significantly below market, even though rent growth has slowed. So it's kind of been surprising to see that, you know, the apartments, the manufactured homes and single family homes for rent have actually underperformed this year. Again, not only for the reason that the rent backdrop still seems pretty solid um, and more so with, you know, for sale starting to slow, but also, you know, something that we talked about before, which is in, a, in an inflationary environment, the ability to reprice your leases every year helps you maintain pricing power because, you know, if you have a long-term, you know, lease or five or 10 years, you can't reprice that, or maybe you can only reprice one-fifth of your leases every single year. But if you can turn over your apartment leases or 80% of them in any given year, you're able to very quickly catch up with whatever's going on with inflation. So, you know, I, again, I, it could just be that it was a more concentrated sector year to date. It could be that people are really worried about the second derivative, which is what I think it is, where rent just, you know, sort of peaked earlier this year and is just going to continue to slow. If we're looking at a recession, Obviously, household formation is going to start to slow. The ability of people to continue paying higher rents is going to slow. But I would say the long-term outlook for those property types tends to be very, very strong. You have excellent companies in all three of those industries. You have slowing supply. You know, you probably have more supply in apartments than you do in single family, than you do in manufactured homes. But again, not a massive oversupply there. Um, excellent companies with good balance sheets, good debt availability, excellent operating platforms. Um, I would say the outlook for those guys would be very, very strong um, and continue to be. Um, if you look at one other sector, we haven't really touched on them too much, and that would be warehouse or industrial. Um, those, you know, th th those, those assets were priced extremely aggressively going into the year. Um, and you know, warehouses, as, as, as you know, have really benefited post-COVID, where so much of e-commerce has expanded and warehouse demand was tremendous. Warehouse supply was not nearly keeping up with it. Um, but this year, you know, we've seen, you know, a, a, maybe just a bit of a reversion to me. And, and I think you've also just seen a little bit of a slowing in overall e-commerce spend. Um, it looks like e-commerce as a percentage of overall retail sales is starting to slow just a bit. I, I still think, you know, the outlook over the next 10 years for e-commerce still seems very, very strong, but maybe just a little bit of a return to earth from stocks that were priced extremely aggressively. And I would say over there, the outlook still seems pretty good. The outlook in office is a little bit more challenging. And, you know, th th this is a property type that was, you know, it's one of the big four food groups, if you will, of classic commercial property, which would be office, apartments, uh, warehouses, and retail, which would include both strip centers and shopping malls. Um, but, you know, office now, you know, and ever since COVID, it has been really, really challenged because of the rise of working from home. Um, I think a lot of us thought that, you know, in 2020, that would be temporary. It was just a, you know, a, a, a new thing. And, you know, once this went away quickly, then we'd all go back to, to offices as, you know, we've been doing for the last, I don't know, 7,500 years. Uh, <laughs> maybe in 2021, that seemed a little bit more, you know, more, more doubtful. Going into 2022, that seemed plausible. Um, but as the year has gone on, you know, 2022, it doesn't seem, uh, we, we've seen a return to office, as I think, the, the, you know, the country largely has returned to normal. But, you know, kind of like we've had here and, you know, both, you know, for, for listeners of this podcast, you know, both Jess and I are remote workers who, you know, are not necessarily in Columbus, you know, five days a week. Right. And, um, 
you know, so the you know the the, the rise of company, you know, of, of, of people working from home, the rise of flex work arrangements, even for people who live in that city, I think continues to grow, and that's really been a you know a, a big challenge for you know for office. Um, you layer into that a, a potential economic recession, which generally is you know or, or has almost always been poor for overall you know job. Uh, I'm sorry, office using job demand. Um, the outlook there seems a little bit tougher. Yeah, and it seems uh, to your point on office that um, you know companies are reevaluating how much space they actually need for a long on on the long term. Now that it seems like this work from home is is somewhat sticking around for, at least at least for a good number of companies. Most definitely, I mean, you know, there, there there's plenty of companies that there are some trends in place that are still going to help, right? And it, it depends on the type of company, it depends on the industry, and it depends where their space okay. is. Um, you know, for, for the for the 20 years before 2020, you saw a very steady drop in square footage per employee. So mm -hmm. people who had an office, their office got smaller. People who had a small office maybe got moved to a cubicle. Um, you know, I, I don't think we need to go into the horror that is open office to begin with, <laughs> but certainly a lot of people did not like that. Um, right. So, you know, I, I don't, you know, if, if somebody just says, hey, we have 20% fewer um people in the office right now, I don't think that always translates to, okay, fine, well, now we need 20% less square footage. You can mm -hmm. say, hey, now we can give people bigger cubicles or you know, semi-private offices. Mm -hmm. Maybe we want to use more space for conferences, you know, for, for, uh, you know, for, for conference sure. rooms, for small group breakouts, for you know, company get-togethers, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, but, uh, but either way, I think the direction is still going to be smaller, right? If you have 25% less employees using your office, even in good times, um, you know, th there, there's going to be less need for space, certainly for bigger companies. You know, for smaller companies, you mm -hmm. know, and people who already maybe have 250 square feet per, per employee and maybe only have six or seven people, I think it's really a different business model for them, right? Even for, you know, companies like us or other, you know, mid-sized to large-sized companies um, where your choice is taking you know, a little bit less space, you're not always able to take a little bit less space, right? If you want to occupy 80% of a floor, your landlord may not be amenable to that. The larger floor, you know, smaller floor plan when you're occupying most of the floor with the elevator banks may not work for you. Um, so again, there's always going to be different ways of cutting that up. But yes, the trend definitely seems negative. Well, let's let's shift gears to the to the more positive side, uh, kind of in contrast to what we're talking about. And uh, again, you mentioned a couple of them, hotels, namely um, that have definitely benefited from certain trends or shifts in the overall environment. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about those sectors or subsectors? Sure. So I think we've touched on warehouse to a degree, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and again, I, I I still expect that to be a sector that you know, has positive overall demand. I think we've seen more supply. That was definitely a big issue in 2008 where so many of the companies were just large merchant developers or, you know, had enormous land banks that were continuing to build out. I, I, I even think some of them were very well ahead of e-commerce. And, you know, you know in, in 2007, 2008, the industrial sector did very, very poorly. Um, and there was a big oversupply of that, you know, of, of that property type for a while. But you know, ever since about 2015, 2016, there's been a, a, a lot of tightness in that market. We're probably seeing a little bit of slack right now because so many companies just took excess warehouse supply because they couldn't secure any of it in 2020, 2021 without making big multi-year commitments. 
And I think what we saw in 2022 has been some of those companies, maybe most notably Amazon, are having a little bit of buyer's regret. So mm-hmm. that market will take a little bit of time to work out. But I think overall, it still favors the landlords over the next few years. Another sector to touch on that has been a beneficiary has been data centers. Um, strangely, again, they've been a poor performer, um, you know, year to date. Um, and, and their pricing economics don't necessarily do well. But, you know, as more, you know, the, the explosion of big data, the explosion of e-commerce um, have, have kind of been slow burn benefit, benefits to them in the background. And I think what we saw in 2020 has been, you know, just a, a much bigger explosion of that, you know, with cloud computing, um, with a lot of prop tech and, 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 and young, you know, venture capital funded companies that relied so much on a lot of those cloud computing companies. Um, you know, the, the, the demand for data centers has just been tremendous. Um, and one thing that we've seen in the public environment over the last few years has been a lot of um, uh, public to private uh, takeouts where, Today, there are only three data center companies. A year, year and a half ago, there were seven companies. So, you know, there, okay. there, there's been, you know, a lot of those privatizations. Um, in one case, it was public to public when, when Tower Company, American Tower, bought a core site. But hmm. for the most part, it's been, you know, private entities like private equity funds that have bought up a lot of those portfolios. Um, I think I even saw a headline yesterday that said, you know, there are people who are worried that uh, we're going to run out of data center storage by 2025. Um Power is becoming increasingly expensive for them. And, you know, nobody really wants a data center in their background, in their backyard, right? It's big, it's ugly, it doesn't employ anybody, it sucks up huge amounts of power. So Mm -hmm. the supply constraints there are growing. Um, But that still does seem like a sector where the overall demand should trend very, very positively over the next five to 10 years. I think the bigger question for that sector is more, can they translate that into pricing power? Or is there kind of a Moore's law in effect with a lot of the data centers that, um, you know, tends to dampen some of their pricing growth over time. Um, A third sector that's kind of stealth benefited from, you know, COVID in the last few years has also been self-storage, which we touched on before. People needed more space. People are working at home more. You know, if you're working at home, but you had a home office and you were fortunate enough to have that and, you know, but you were still going to be at home more, um, maybe you wanted to clean out an extra room to make it into a home office. Maybe you wanted to do a home, you know, a, a home expansion project. And self storage tends to benefit from people moving around, people, you know, people moving around to get new jobs, people doing activity on their homes. Um, so all all the activity for the last couple of years has been very very positive for self storage. Again, that's a sector that you know where you're kind of seeing fundamental, you know, its occupancy got so high earlier this year and late last year that it, it didn't seem sustainable, but they've been able to keep up pricing pretty well. And that tends to be, you know, a, a sector that usually does well in both good and bad economic environments. Um, so I, I continue to be positive on, you know, self-storage, but in general, that's been a business that's benefited probably to a lesser degree than the other, you know, mm-hmm. companies, but also to a degree from, um, you know, from what's happened, from, from what's happened with COVID and probably continues to be. Um, the last one, again, you know, that, you know, to touch on would also be hotels. Um, and it really has impacted hotels in a very unusual way. Um, and that is, you know, your classic business hotel has, you know, clearly had very bad demand, right? Business travel is down. People don't want to fly across the country for one meeting anymore. People weren't flying across to meet anybody for the better part of two years. (laughs) And even now, I think, you know, there's a lot more hesitation between people wanting to go and, you know, take 
shorter business trips and that kind of thing. And you know, you can see that in the airlines, how they're pricing more, maybe economy plus versus business class. You know, some airlines, even on international, I think, are just taking out first class, which used to almost exclusively be the domain of uh, of business travelers. Um, so all that's been you know different, but on the leisure side, that's where demand has been tremendous because with people working at home more and you know people having a little bit more flexibility to work from anywhere um you know the ability to travel maybe take a midweek vacation or maybe fly out somewhere on wednesday night work from a hotel thursday friday and then stay on saturday and sunday and mm -hmm. come back or you know maybe stay through monday and then come back um has really opened up a lot of different avenues for um you know for, for the leisure travelers um most of the hotel reads tend to have a mix of you know pure leisure business leisure urban drive to fly to kind of market so again it, it, it's been a very uneven impact on them but you know the hotels and the you know leisure um you know and, and and how that leisure customer and even how the business customer i think is changing um will probably be tremendously impactful on the leisure hotel market um you know for i i have to believe for you know for for, for, for a long time um where the impact on you know on on, on business hotels um seems to be more negative um the other thing that's kind of an open question there is more conference hotels where you know if companies are going to have more distributed workforce more remote work but they want to come together more often to have people you know to to, to you know to have their employees together to have their, or to have smaller teams get together you know small to mid-size or even large size conference hotels and just larger industry conferences tend to be of more importance where everybody can get together um, I don't know about you, and maybe you had some experiences with this, but I know that, you know, just going to a conference, you know, the first conference I went to was March of this year in 2022, and everybody oh, sure. was just so utterly thrilled to see each other. Um, <laughs> and I think that still continues to be true. You know, I, people, right. just have, people, you know, Zoom conferences got really terrible really fast. Um, it's nice to meet with people, and it definitely makes some things easier. But I think being in one place together, even if, if, that, if you'll do that for a few days a year, um, that seems to have longer term benefits as well. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and I do think people are wanting to get back out. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, Josh, my final question for you, and you've touched on it here and there throughout our conversation, um, pertains to the residential housing market. Um, even this week, we saw data come out that U.S. home sales declined again in the month of November uh, for the 10th straight month. Uh, given the rising mortgage rate environment and uh, home prices that are still elevated, though they've come down some, um, and those certainly have not been incentives for buyers in the market. Can you share your insights with us on what the residential housing market could look like as we head into 2023 and beyond? Yeah, it's it, it, it's a great question. And um, it's, it, it's it's been interesting to look at this year as well. Um, one thing I would note is that home builders have basically performed in line or maybe even slightly better, it really depends on the day this week, um, than some of the for rent housing, which is actually unusual. Home builders tend to be more economically sensitive, right? They don't have long-term cash flow streams and, you know, are, are tend to be seen as much more economically sensitive, even if, even though, you know, a lot of them have really, really good balance sheets. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so seeing home builders in, in a year that rates have risen so much that demand has really started to slow and you know that um you know we're 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 the we're the backdrop for apartments tends to tends to be so much stronger seeing you know the home builders basically performing in line with apartments i think i, I know it surprised me I, I have to believe it surprised a lot of people mm -hmm. um look it, it's it's a it, it's a tough time i think 
Um, I don't think this is 2008. The you know the the you know the overall backdrop for housing you know is much stronger. It was a very slow recovery from 2008 through call it early 2020, where yeah, low rates were definitely goosing things there a little bit. But I think there were just so many people who had gone through 2008 and either saw their their their, their housing savings wiped out or saw friends get their housing savings wiped out and just looked at a house and said. This isn't a great, you know, thing thing to do. People were delaying marriage. People were delaying children. You know, especially among the millennial generation. I know it's always fun to blame everything on the millennial generation, but <laughs> let's blame them anyway. Uh, but you know, but the millennial generation really is the in, in, in they they have been particularly for the last eight years in their prime, you know, marriage, children, you know, home buying age, you know, age age cohorts, and now that's starting to happen with Gen Z a little bit. Um, and those are both, you know, pretty large, sizable generations, but we didn't really see that move from for rent housing and certainly not from urban for rent housing into the classic more suburban and then into for sale residential. Mm-hmm. I think with COVID, that was kind of seen as a catalyst to jumpstart that. Maybe the problem there was there was so much demand and it happened so quickly that builders really in the latter part of 2020 and through probably 2021 and early 2022 just couldn't keep up with the, with the demand. There mm-hmm. were supply chain challenges. There was, you know, prices went crazy. Um, you know, th- th- there, there were just a lot of issues where, you know, people could not keep up with that demand. My belief is that there, there's, there's a large cohort among the millennials and emerging among Gen Z who are at that stage now of wanting to move into a bigger place but with home prices so high still, and now mortgage rates getting really, really high, the cost of owning a home has actually gotten really expensive really quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think one of those two things needs to correct. Um, it's probably a lot easier for that to correct, though, on the new home sale side than it is on the existing home sale side. So on the new home sale side, you know, the, the impetus of any home builder is going to be sell the community, you know, sell it out get it done, make a profit. If those things are not going to be doing well, but the community is, you know, 25% or 30% sold, or it's already mostly built, um, you know, your their incentive there is let's get that sold, even if that takes providing more incentives, providing rate buy downs, lower prices, upgrades, you know, those kinds of things. Sure. You know, it's a lot easier for those things to get done. And they, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty bright and have, you know, good ways of understanding that pricing and seeing what's going on in the market. So, I think you'll see them react a lot quicker. And really we have so far at either cutting price, offering more incentives, those kinds of things. Um, the more challenging part, but, some, but, but paradoxically, maybe the better part from the, from the economic perspective would be existing home sales. And those have actually hung in though. I, I kind of wonder if it's an artifact of just how the government accounts for existing home sales. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if somebody is in their home and they have a sub 3% mortgage, um, that's in place right now, it's going to take a lot for them to want to sell that house into an uncertain market and also commit at the same time to be buying a new house. So I think for a lot of them, almost the bias ends up staying where they are. So you're seeing existing home inventory being very, very low right now. And that probably stays the same way. In a lot of ways, that actually favors the new home market and the, and, and the, home, and, and the new home sale market. But again, you know, as, as you know, I'm sure, um, it's not always the same, right? If you want to move into an existing neighborhood because that's where your friends are, or that's where the school is, or that's where convenient for your workplace or for whatever reason, and there just is no new home development there, right? You have to deal with an existing home set, uh, you know, homeowner right. somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to take a little bit longer to sort out. The good news there is 
you know, the distress has been very, very low with a lot of people with low, you know, mortgage rates in place and decent savings rates. You're not seeing a lot of mortgage distress. Um, so again, I, I think at some point and probably in 2023, that starts to favor the new home sales guys. And again, the long-term backdrop for demand still seems pretty good. But if we are going into a recession and there's going to be job losses, decreasing, um, you know, de decreasing savings rates, decreasing mm -hmm. wages, um, slowing um, uh, home formations and, and household formations, excuse me, those kinds of things. Um, you know, all that's going to be a negative, but longer term, I think the picture for, you know, just, you know, for, for, for home sales demographically looks mm -hmm. pretty strong. Um, if we're going to have 8% rates, I mean, look, housing did pretty well in the 70s and 80s. That's um, right. <laughs> mortgage rates were double digits, right? So everybody just has to get, you know, adjusted to it. I think we've all just been spoiled. Right. Um, you know, I'm not that old, right? But my first mortgage was, was six and a quarter. Oh, um, yeah. My, my yeah, parents claim 13% on their first mortgage. So, yeah. I think everybody, you know, everybody that I know of a certain generation says, yeah, their first mortgage is 22%, blah, right. blah, blah. I'm not so sure how true that is. Um, <laughs> But at the very least, right, you know, we, we were we were tremendously spoiled, mm -hmm. you know, having, you know, two, two and a half, three and a half percent mortgage rates. Um, but again, something has to give just given where the overall, I think, pricing is, you know, you can't have very high house, house prices mm -hmm. and also very, high, you know, and, and relatively high mortgage rates. Something's got to give at some point. Sure. Josh, there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on in, in these different sectors and subsectors. So it'll be interesting to see how things play out as we head into the new year. But um, thank you again so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And I hope you and our listeners have a wonderful holiday season. And I look forward to speaking again in the new year. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for everything. And uh, yeah, wishing everybody a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year. Thanks, Josh. 